Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, I'm really excited for tonight's conversation. Um, We have as usual, a very special guest that's joining us for this conversation. And as many of you have been writing and calling uh, to talk about the timeliness of this, is that tonight we're going to be discussing the adultification of Black girls. Um, And who I have with me is someone who has been uh, a leader in this, uh, addressing this issue, uh, who is the Vice President of Equity and Innovation at the Institute for Child Success. Um, just like to welcome uh, to the show, Mary Garvey. Uh, welcome, Mary. Thank you, Dr. Perkins. Thank you for having me. Well, so glad to have you. Uh, Mary uh, is a native New Yorker. Um, she's very passionate about building equitable systems and fostering social justice uh, through policy. Uh, she has been Uh, working with the National Academy of Public Administration, the South Carolina Summit on Early Childhood, and a number of other uh, worthwhile causes. And so she's been consulting on projects around housing policy and daycare compliance and and breakfast in the classroom. So a variety of, of, of topics that are related to child success. And so uh, Mary, I, I, I'd love to start by asking you, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and the organization you're a part of, the Institute of Child Success. Sure. So as you mentioned, I am uh, a native New Yorker, um, and I reside in New York City um, at the moment, so we're pretty much neighbors. Uh, and I, I guess the thing that I would want you all to know about me is that I am very passionate um, about looking at policy solutions um, to, to social issues, social justice issues. So looking at those issues that occur when we look at the intersections of race, education, social economics, um, and really looking at populations that have kind of been on the fringes of society historically um, and, and what we can do when we are, um, when we're in need of addressing systemic social, social issues. Um, and so it is really, uh, that passion that has landed me um, at the Institute for Child Success, where I have been for almost seven years um, at this point. Next month, we'll, we'll make seven years um, since I have been there. Um, and so the Institute for Child Success is an early childhood research and policy organization that pursues the success of all children. And so we do that um, in, in many different ways, um, which include proposing smart public policies, that are grounded in research, advising governments, nonprofits, foundations, and other stakeholders um, on strategies to improve outcomes, just, just a number of ways um, that, we, that we do that. So ICF is based out of Greenville, South Carolina, um, but we have uh, a number of remote team members uh, who are across the country in places such as New Jersey, Maryland, Oregon, New Mexico, Texas. Um, and as I mentioned, of course, I work remotely out of my home here in, in New York City. 
Um, and so with a mission that is focused on pursuing the success of all children, um, we really acknowledge that equity is at the core of the work that we do because we realize that the success of all children and not some children is contingent upon an equitable early childhood ecosystem and looking at why there may be um, some disparities for um, certain populations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, very interesting. And you, so you you have a wide range of influence across a lot of topics that are important to uh, communities that need it. Um, and so um, I, I brought you on, you know, this topic of adultification of black girls is one that's um, is personal for me, as I told you um, in our in our time right before we went live, is that I'm the father of four girls. Um, black girls that um, have attended public schools, and uh, it has not been without its own set of challenges. Um, even though in in the community where my children went to school, they were I was on the school board and school board president for much of their elementary and middle school experiences. Um, and and I, you know, I think about having the the voice of being able to speak up for them um f- both in an official capacity but also um just as a parent feeling um that I did have the power to speak up for them um what do you see as you talk to parents around the country do do are you finding that parents are not feeling empowered enough to do something about um what we're what is basically considered, you know, girls not being given a chance to to develop and be girls um, and that they're expected to be far beyond their years in development, um, cognitively, emotionally and otherwise. Um, do, so I'd, lo- I'd love to hear your thoughts there. What are, what are parents feeling about the topic? Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 basically ask if parents are not feeling um, empowered to to kind of speak up um, about these mm-hmm. issues. I think that sometimes it could be the case that, you know, as parents or adults that, that may have little ones that we really care about, it could be the case that we know that something doesn't, we know that something doesn't feel right. Um, you know, something seems like it's, it's, it's a bit off, but we're not, we may not be quite sure. So I think that there are cases mm-hmm. where parents are just not quite sure, you know, what to say. It could be the case that, you know, they might think, well, my child was misbehaving or, you know, if, right, you know, right. if, if, if a child is in private school, you know, I've heard things like, well, she, my child is a scholarship child or the child themselves may say they don't mm-hmm. want to bring it up to their parent because they're a scholarship child and they're, mm-hmm. they're at risk of, they, they feel that they're at risk of losing a scholarship or just getting a bad reputation in a place yeah. where they may already feel marginalized. Um, and overlooked. Uh, I think that there are other cases where parents do indeed speak up. Um, They do. Uh, And, you know, they may not have the research to bring (laughs) to bring that. They may not have read, you know, 15 articles about the topic, but they certainly Mm -hmm. um, do go in to advocate um, for their Mm -hmm. child. And, you know, I think many times it is met met with a bit of with a bit of pushback. And I think that Mm -hmm. there really is that fear out there of a child being labeled early on as a problem child, you know, and then what happens when that label has been attached to your child, they go from grade to grade school to school, class to class, where a teacher has already been warned, well, watch out for that one, you know, is that really, is that really us doing the best for, for our children? And I say our, because, you know, as a society, we should be looking at all children as our Mm -hmm. children, because really they are the future of our societies and our communities. So Mm -hmm. those are some of the things that I've seen 
um, you know, at the height of what has had several different labels and names um, in the spring of 2020, um, where there were these very publicized um, racial tensions and, you know, it might have seemed that we were getting somewhere um, as, as a country. ICS did um, talk to parents of, of Black children more generally, not specifically about adultification, but of course adultification did come out in the conversations that we had. And so we spoke to almost 100 different um, parents of Black children just to gather their stories and understand what was going on in that moment. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we can read, you know, 100 books and, and sit in our ivory towers, or sometimes it seems that they're ivory towers, and do our research. But if we're not talking to people who have the lived experience, are That's we really right. getting that full, the full breadth of the research, right? And so right. what we found in kind of like that moment of just heightened, you know, I don't want to say heightened tension because many of us feel the tension all the time, <laughs> year round, every year, right? Mm-hmm. But something that was just very publicized in that moment and the protests were literally happening in every state across the country. Um, when we spoke to parents and we, you know, we questioned them and we said, you know, do recent incidents make you feel more worried about your child's future? Um, an overwhelming majority, 87% of them um, said yes. And we got some mm-hmm. stories uh, from parents of black girls who, who, you know, detailed to us uh, moments when they did feel that their child was treated unfairly. Maybe something mm-hmm. happened and, you know, both children did the same thing, but um, the white child was not punished when their child was punished and maybe taken out of class and even, you know, put on suspension. Just cases right. of having um, much harsher punishments and those exclusionary punishments that, you know, we often fear will lead a child to fall behind in school or even just right. fall out of the school system all around, right? Yes. So those are some of the things um, that we that we have seen. And I will say, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm clear. I do not think that a parent has to have read all the studies to be a, to right. be a great advocate. Right. I mean, right. speaking up for your child is more than, you know, is more than enough. Um, and there is a voice that a parent has that none of us will have, right? Because there is that relationship that they have and that I think, instinct to protect their child and to nurture their child in many cases. Mm-hmm. No, I, I would agree. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned um, about the conversations that we need to pay attention to and, and the perspectives we need to hear. Um, I had uh, the great privilege uh, last year um, time is passing so fast, but um, in the last year, um, I invited parents on. First, I invited a group of black men with black boys to talk about what was going on with the George Floyd case. Um, and I also <laughs> invited black women in with black girls to talk about their experiences and just some very interesting um, uh, experiences that they that they shared um, what was what had been happening and and just to the point of advocacy that it, it's not something that we often are taught um, and especially in the in our the black community um, that advocacy is is something that you you have to feel that you have you're going to be heard and there's no, that there are no real repercussions. And, and just from conversations, like you said, people feel that they're going to be punished if they speak up. Um, many okay. times they feel that they're going to be uh, punished. Um, I, I remember a few incidents I had of going in and, and even when people didn't know that I was on the school board, um, and they would find out later, but the way they talked 
to me, I think, in part because I was a black man, but the assumptions they made about who I was coming as a parent to advocate, that I was looking for something. It's a very difficult um, experience, uh, and and you you have to have the strength to go through that. So I, I think, you know, your organization and others that are helping um, parents learn how to be advocates are very essential. Um, uh, you know, on this topic of of black girls and and in some cases the criminalization and others the adultification, uh, it, it shows up in different ways. You know, I had I had you know so like four girls. I, I I'd laugh with my friends. I say I'm an expert because I have four. Not many people have four. So I say I'm an expert at this. But um, but the truth is that when when and and all of are very different, but um, I, I consciously did things that um, I, I said to myself, I don't want them to feel that they can't be who they are, but I need them to understand that there are constraints. And, you know, actions don't necessarily, they, they, they come with consequences, um, but I wanted to give them enough experience as young people to feel empowered. One such example, um, I put my 14-year-old daughter, this was the third one, so I was, like, I was getting even better at it by then, but I put my 14-year-old daughter on an airplane to Brazil to go and spend the summer with friends who were going to let her attend a school there, but just by herself. And she changed planes, the whole thing. But the reason I did that was because I wanted her to have the experience, some deliberate experiences that not just to make her grow up fast, but so that she would feel confident um, uh, and and secure in doing that. Do you think you know, that, I mean, that we had the ability to do that, but there are so many ways in which we 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 push them out to give them experiences. But for me, also a fear that is it are we doing too much? Is it is it too fast? Um, what do you you know? What are your thoughts about that? If you know, there's a delicate balance between them having experiences to be uh, to, you know to develop into responsible adults. But then there are also um, situations that they can be in that um, they, they still behave as, you know, 14-year-olds. Um, what do you think the balance is there? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, my, my gut here would say that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution right. um, to something like that and that, you know, we have to trust parents and guardians to be the experts. Um, on their children and what, you know, what it is that their children can handle and what they need for um, their development, what experiences might benefit them most. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I bet you would say that you're, that you're glad you did it at this point, even though you might oh, be nervous. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. that, you know, in that moment. Um, but it is, you know, it's, you know, I'm such a fan of, you didn't ask me specifically about traveling, but I'm such a fan of kind of going out and seeing other countries and other cultures um, and, and getting um, more of a worldview that is not just through the lens of, um, I guess, 
American news and media and experiences, because I do think that it helps with, with growth. And I think it also helps with empathy and just being a mm. better um, mm-hmm. human and moving about in the world in a way that is a bit more compassionate, that does help mm-hmm. one to think more about other people, because you realize that the way that you have grown up and the things that you have seen are not necessarily the center of the That's right. and the right. be all end all of how things operate. And there's something about that that I think just has the, the potential to create a better human being and a better, um, a yeah. better experience um, in this, yeah. in this life. So I, you know, I think it, to me, it sounds wonderful. I think that if you all yeah. felt that it was something that, that your 14 year old could handle, then why not? You know, and it seems yeah. that, yeah. that it turned out well. Um, as yeah. for, you know, I do think that there is a bit of a thin line sometimes between feeling that a black girl in the society should, should grow up a bit more quickly um, in order to deal with some of the societal challenges, right? And then on, mm-hmm. the, on the other hand saying, <laughs> excuse me, on the other hand saying, but my child is still a child and I want her to have, That's to right. have her childhood. So I think right. that, it, it, you know, it really is a bit of a delicate balance. But I think the thing that is really important is that you remember that she, that she was a 14-year-old girl um, in right. that moment. Because yes. when we do talk about adultification, like the whole premise of it, um, I think, you know, it's, it's mostly based off of um, a study in 2017 um, that was put out by um, the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality mm-hmm. called Girlhood mm-hmm. Interrupted, the Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood. And so the idea behind it is that girls are seen as more, Black girls are seen as more adult than their white peers. Um, yes. And that, you know, specifically, um, it's based on perceptions and stereotypes are based on how adults view children in the absence of knowing anything about the child's behavior yes, or what the child yes. might say. It's a preconceived mm-hmm. notion mm-hmm. that results in negative treatment, such as harsher punishments, you know, and, and those are the children that are more likely to be kicked out of a classroom or even kicked out of school. Yes, yes. No, absolutely. And, you know, there, so there are two books that I've I've read and, and are familiar with, one that you and I talked about before, Push Out, uh, by Monique okay. Morris, uh, the criminalization of black girls in schools, and um, Between Good and Ghetto by Nikki Jones, African-American mm-hmm. girls and inner city violence. And so she, she posed the question Nikki Jones did in her book, um, why is it that inner city girls must struggle so hard to simply survive? And I've seen that play out, you know, in New York City, certainly, um, but it's not just inner cities, but um, it, I've seen it all over the, the country um, where where girls are struggling really hard to survive. But particularly, we, you know, a lot of times we, we zone, kind of zoom right in on inner city girls. And um, I, I recall um, one of the universities where I used to teach, um, there was a, a situation where um, even at that level, at the graduate school level, let me let me just say that um, at the graduate school level, where a a white male, I mean a white female um, professor um, took issue with a a black woman um, confronting her on a question, you know, in front of the entire class. And it kept going on, I mean, literally for months, every time we would meet. Um, so the idea of passing along the, st- the story to other people, well, you got to watch out for that one. That one is a troublemaker. And finally, in this faculty meeting, I said, are you, like, are you still talking about that? 
because it's it's over. You know, like we've addressed it. You've talked about it. She was called in to talk about how she could have better handled it. But I but I, what I said is, do you not understand that in order? And I I will never forget this young lady was from the South Bronx. I said if she were she didn't have that edge, she would have been eaten alive in her environment. It's like that's what it took for her to survive. And so what we have to do is be more patient and understanding of them and and give her the tools that in this environment, here's how you approach conflict and this is what you do and how you say it. But, but you know, take her where she is and if you, you need to give her some other tools, do that. But But immediately it went to punishing because her what her orientation to conflict was to handle it a different way and i think it starts mm-hmm. very very early for our girls and 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 um actually monique morris actually said it in push out she she said that you know kind of black women have interpreted defiance as an example and i would think conflict the same way is something not inherently bad and that she gave examples of of when you know kind of conflict defiance were in from from our cultural perspective people like Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth were defiant and those were examples that they had of great black women and who they had to be in order to have their community survive what do you what do you think about that from a cultural perspective you know, I, I absolutely see that, you know, from a cultural perspective. And it just makes me, it makes me think about the tropes of black women, which we then put onto, onto girls, right, young girls. And it specifically makes me think of the trope of angry black women, where it, it is so easy to think that a black woman is unjustifiably angry, way, way easier than it is to get to the root of what she may be reacting to. Um, and so, and I think, you know, and we, we do that, we do that to black girls as well. And I want to say, <laughs> this is, this may be somewhat of a controversial opinion and observation, but you know, it's not just specific. It's not just something that happens outside of the race, because I think that sometimes we do it to our children, right? Mm. Um, it, mm-hmm. it can happen within black households, um, <clears throat> as well. You know, um, it's calling, it's calling a girl fast instead of understanding why mm. she may be behaving the way that she is and not getting mm-hmm. to, to the root of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, you know, what your comment makes me think of as well in terms of like, you know, the, the whole understanding kind of the cultural um, context of things is how important it is to, in the classroom, develop relationships and to understand the backgrounds and the cultures that, um, that students are are coming from right mm-hmm, um it's mm-hmm. you know i think just in just in kind of thinking ahead about about this podcast and just um just thinking about different resources and different things that i've read i i was um calling to mind um an, an article that was published in 1935 so <laughs> quite a while ago um now and it was by civil rights activist sociologist and writer W.E.B. Du Bois on it, um, entitled Does the Negro Need Separate Schools, where he was addressing a topic that apparently is still a hot topic, um, of the issue of hostile school environments um, for black children. And so where he landed was not that we should have separate schools, but that there needs to be what he referred to as a sympathetic touch between, um, teacher, between teacher and student, 
right? And so I thought a bit, I thought a bit about that and what that might really mean. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he does go into some detail and kind of talking about the importance of the teacher understanding the student's, the student's background and be willing to spend the time to kind of understand and get to know a student and get to know a student's history and where they're coming mm-hmm. from and the benefit of that. Um, mm-hmm. There's a similar train of thought, I think, when I think about um, child developmental psychologist Yuri Brockenbrenner. Um, there's a popular quote um, that states, every child needs at least one adult who is irrationally crazy about her. Crazy. And Absolutely. so what I see in, in both of these things is that the onus has been placed upon the adult in each case to create an environment of nurturing and learning for, for the children. Um, you know, both reinforce um, the delicately impressionable nature of childhood. And I think yes. that that has become something a bit countercultural in a society that overemphasizes the notion of resilience of black mm-hmm. children and other children of color and children who are otherwise marginalized and on the fringes of society. We love to boast about resilient children, but the truth is oh, maybe society yes. and we as adults need to stop giving children things from which they need to be resilient. Right. Yes. So, yes. Um, so, you know, there, there is that, but it, you know, it gets to that notion of what you're saying of understanding um, environment and upbringing um, and all of those things. It shouldn't be seen as inherently bad to want to address something head on, you know, and you're right that there are um, children and young people out there who have a certain way of dealing with things because that is how they, it, it's a survival skill. You That's know? right. That's right. Um, and if we took the time to understand, we would know that it's a survival skill. <laughs> and right, right. Something that, you know, and not something that should cause them to be labeled for the entirety of their education, which mm-hmm. may be cut short because of that very label. Um, you know, I think in addition, there is that there, there's the importance of relationship and advocacy that I think both um, Du Bois, that both um, Du Bois and Brockenbrenner um, really had in their in, in their quotes and their thoughts there. Um, you know, a sympathetic teacher or adult seems, seeks to understand where a child is coming from and advocates for her. A teacher or adult who is irrationally crazy about a child believes the best and shows that day in and day out. Um, And so there's a different way of interacting with a child or any person when one believes the best about them. Um, And so to me, I often think about what it would look like to have a society of sympathetic adults (laughs) and teachers who are irrationally crazy about children, including black girls. Um, And, you know, and I know that that means that they're not operating from a place of implicit bias and believing the worst. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I just just listening to you um, talk about the different um, the different ways in which we have to approach this. Um, I also think about in Push Out, where um, she spends some time talking about kind of good girls, bad girls and and, you know, how those are seen, what what some of those traits are. And so mm-hmm. I just found it fascinating that, you know, kind of the good girls are the ones that um, follow a certain, um, you know, don't like the, the don't confront are not confrontational are, are quiet and, and don't uh, make the mistakes of, of typical teens. I won't even just say girls, but they, you know, just don't make very many mistakes. And, and this whole idea of them being fast and what have you, um, while the same is not given to boys. And we, and we know that. I mean, we, and that, that even through our mainstream culture, 
as we know, most recently has been reinforced that, you know, kind of the boys will be boys. And it's like, what is this? Why, uh-huh. why is this even acceptable? Um, it was just surprising to me over the last five years or so that that, were, that was the case. Um, but one thing that really struck me and actually just really made me pause for a moment in Push Out where the, the section where she talked about bad girls do cry. And she talks about this little girl named Portia who um, was supposed to be a tough kid, went through, uh, had been in um, uh, the ward of the state and had been in and out of foster homes, what have you. But she's supposed to be the tough kid. And just a situation where she was kind of bullied by a teacher. But in this moment of the situation that happened, um, she cried because that's what she could do. And that somehow they still see black girls as as something other than just what they are, girls, not women. Um, and so many people, both of of all races, are guilty of this, but do the same thing. I think about what we've seen on the national news where the student was slammed to the ground. I think it was in South Carolina where she was dumped out of her desk. Um, um, That happened. Uh, There was a teenager who was in at a family cookout and was in a, in her swimsuit and the police came and he picked her up and slammed her to the ground and got on top of her. Um, And, and so I, I mean, just so many examples of this and, and even more recently, I've heard of people who are doing things like pulling um, the hair of, of, um, te- of a 12-year-old and a teacher. And so some people say it's stress-related. Some people say it's this or that. But what I, what I think about is the fact that um, we still have to allow them the space, and I say this all the time, the space and the grace to grow. And they may say things that you would that are not imaginable from coming out of a 12 year old's mouth or 15 year olds they might say it but they're still 12 and 15 you you can't forget that and so while they may use adult words it's coming from an uh, uh an adolescent brain and um and so i i guess you know my question is what do you think it is that still allows people like in the case of physical violence against young girls, particularly black girls still occurs in that way. You know, it is, it's, it's, it's extremely disturbing. And I feel like every other day there's a new story um, in the news about, about these, these incidents. Um, and, you know, what I'll say is at the end of the day, this adultification, we can say that it's, you know, it's the cause of it is implicit bias, which is, of course, um, unconscious stereotypes that make people react in certain ways and make decisions in certain ways. I mean, but really, if we just want to rip off the Band-Aid, we can say that there's still a lot of racism out there um, at yeah, the end of the yeah. day, where simply mm-hmm. because a child is, <clears throat> is Black, they will be mistreated and stereotyped. Um, and, and I just, you know, there's no way around that. And, you know, and somehow in 2022, it's still controversial to say that racism exists and, yeah. and that it negatively impacts, impacts children. But it is, it is the reality um, that, that we are in at that moment. So that is definitely, um, you know, the thing that I, that I will say. And 
I'm not sure if the impacts of of these incidents is truly something that is recognized um, mm-hmm. and acknowledged broadly. And you know, <clears throat> the thing that I will that I will bring up, you know, because we talk about you just spoke about having grace, you know, when there are certain behavioral challenges, especially because children are still children, and we know, you know, science has taught us by this time that our brains are not even fully developed until the age of 25, right? That's something that we know mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to be a fact at this point. Many of us last year, January 6, 2021, <clears throat> watched live, right, um, as many adults who, who were, who were, um, who were white, were not black, mm-hmm. uh, stormed the Capitol and committed a series of felonies, you know, injuring people, you know, some people died. I mean, it's, and we saw the reaction or lack thereof of law enforcement or just kind of the, the somehow shock that something like that could even happen. And then when you sit there and you juxtapose that with what were largely peaceful protests, in many cases, mm-hmm. um, and how and how you know young people were treated, black and brown young people largely were treated um, in those moments, and the violence um, that was against them. We wonder how there's grace for the rioters on on January 6th, but not for children in a classroom. You That's know, right. and That's right. it's it's. I hope that we that we can all sit down and really think about the trauma that that has to be to be a young child watching that and to, to know watch that, that yes to, to, to watch that and to think this is how this is how i could be treated mm-hmm. and why is this the case that they are not treated that way mm-hmm. you know why is mm-hmm. there grace for adults committing felonies who know what they're doing whose brains are fully developed who are literally mm-hmm. committing crimes and not for <laughs> a quote-unquote disobedient child in a classroom Right. Mm-hmm. So there is something there's something about that that must take a psychological toll on any person, but really much more, um, much more a child. And so, you know, obviously, ICFER is this early childhood organization. Um, and one of one of the things that comes up often in early childhood work is the notion of adverse childhood experiences or um, it's also known as ACEs. Right. And so mm-hmm. increasingly over the years, there seems to be more focus on the possibility of racial trauma as an adverse childhood experience, or at the very least, as something that should be treated with as much attention and care, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. we talk about ACEs so much, but do we really talk about what happens um, when a child endures racial trauma over and over again, whether it's directly or just observing it That's um, right. in the media right. or in their lives, walking down the street? whatever, you know, whatever that case might be. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I have seen some versions of kind of reimagined ACES pyramid um, through an equity lens that um, is now inclusive of things like racial trauma and microaggressions and implicit bias um, because there is so much research that shows um, what, you know, what happens. Um, so right. potentially traumatic events um, such as those that are caused by when, when implicit bias is present, whether it's adult education, suspensions and expulsions, um, these different things can lead to anxiety, depression, lower self-esteem, and even su- suicidal ideation. So, mm-hmm. you know, I want us to be really clear on what, you know, these impacts can be. Mm-hmm. And when we think about how, you know, getting back to our main topic of adultification, you know, that study that I mentioned earlier definitely um, laid out uh, what, you know, what, what can happen, um, like 
black girls are five times more likely to be suspended um, as white girls, two times more likely to be suspended as white boys, um, mm-hmm. nearly three times as likely to be referred to the juvenile justice system as white girls, 20% right. more likely to be charged with a crime, 20% more likely to be detained, and less likely to benefit from prosecutorial discretion. Um, mm-hmm. One study actually found that prosecutors dismiss only 30% of cases against black girls while dismissing 70% of cases against white girls. Wow. And so, you know, we think that it's only, oh, well, she was put out of the classroom. Oh, well, she was just suspended for a few days. Oh, you know, it's no big deal. She's six and she's been expelled. It'll be okay. But again, when you put that label on the child and now being in school is akin to being in a hostile environment (laughs) where a child might, you know, start to think, well, maybe I don't need to do this education thing because it is so hard for me and I'm not wanted here. We can see how these different steps can lead to really ending up, you know, ending up in prison or just feeling like there's no other path. The path is not education, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not nurtured here. I'm not cared for here. Um, and so there are many, many um, implications. You know, one, one other that I want to note, um, one of the researchers on this is Dr. Claude Steele, um, and I actually encountered his work um, in grad school. I was privileged to, um, to actually be taught by uh, Dr. Derek Hamilton, who was at the New mm-hmm. School here in New York City, who introduced yeah. me to stereotype threat, um, which is considered a psychological threat that occurs when there is great anxiety or fear of confirming a negative stereotype about one's social or racial group. Um, and oftentimes it ends up leading to underperformance in the classroom. And so the thing that really stands out to me about this and something that I think about when we, when we talk about, you know, suspension and expulsion, adultification in the classroom, and these different things, is the fact that this really hones in on the psychological impact of implicit mm-hmm. bias in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so you're not ending up in prison, you're not ending up, you know, arrested or, you know, thrown to the ground, but your, your grades are slipping. And, you know, there's no realization of how academically capable you actually are. Um, right. because of this psychological threat. So, you know, yeah. there are just, I, I feel like there are so many different angles to this when we think about what, um, you know, what these impacts may be. Yes, yes. And I, you know, exactly what you said exists in the classrooms. And I want to go back to what you talked about in terms of discipline, um, because I don't know if you remember, but there was a couple of years ago, um a a six-year-old girl was put in handcuffs in Orlando, Florida. And when I tell you the video is heartbreaking, I'm not even going to tell people to go look at it because it's heartbreaking that a police officer put a six-year-old girl in handcuffs and in the back of a car as she she pleaded for him to give her another chance. So I don't even understand how he continued down the path. But, it, it, you know, kind of the, the typical thing that she had refused to do something. I can't remember what it was, but she had refused to do something and threw a tantrum. She was six years mm-hmm. old. And it's like, that's what children do. And at six years old, especially. And it was probably, as I recall, something that was about something ridiculous, like, Oh, I know it was, it was about like sunglasses or something. And she just threw a tantrum because that's what happens. But I, what, what is just so disturbing to me is that that's an extreme example that a six-year-old, I don't know how we still, we, we, you know, to me, that is at the level of 
you know, we need to protest some of this stuff too. Um, we, there are things that we, that we have allowed to go on that need to stop. And particularly the statistics you just um, recited are staggering. You're talking about three, three times, you know, more likely and, and so forth. Those, those are staggering, especially when you talk about what percentage they are of the population, that they are more times to be more times likely to be suspended than groups that are orders of magnitude higher than them in the general population. And so I, you know, I just, I, I wanted to do this. And as I told you before, I've been looking for someone who could come on and talk to me about this because I think it really is something that needs more attention. Um, you know, the amount of time, and I don't know if you've noticed, I've already, we've gone over um, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to say everything you could in the amount of time we had. Um, but we've, we've gone over and, and, but I think there are a lot of people that will probably reach out um, to you and, and to, to learn more. So um, before we end, I would like tell um, people who are listening in um, how to reach you, your, your Institute and um, emails, um, Twitter accounts, whatever you have, because I, I think, you know, I, I've had the privilege of following and listening and watching this organization, the Institute for Child Success and what you're doing. And I, I definitely want to stay involved with you and, and hear more about projects that you're working on. But please share how people can, can go to your website and what have you. Sure, sure. Thank you for that opportunity. So um, I can be found on the best places to reach me would definitely be LinkedIn. Um, and and I, I am listed there, I believe, as, as Mary Garvey <laughs> and um, on Twitter as at Mary C. Garvey. Um, as for um, Institute for Child Success, we are found on Facebook and LinkedIn as Institute for Child Success. And we are quite active on Twitter as well. And you can find us there at child underscore success. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Um, I'm looking forward. I'm going to look to see. I think you do have kind of a a conference and summit, don't you, for your organization? Don't you do? Yes. um, So we actually have a conference that is coming up really soon um, next week, Friday. It's called our Nurturing Developing um, Minds Conference. And it's actually hosted um, in partnership with um, Prisma Health, South Carolina Lend, and the South Carolina Developmental Disabilities Council. Um, It's it's gone fully virtual now. um, Okay. There is a lot more about it on on our website. um, And we'll, you know, we'll even offer out a discount code for anyone who's listening on this podcast. And that's how you learned about it. We can offer um, 50% off. Okay, excellent. I would be. I, I'm going to make sure it goes out on my in my networks as well, and encourage people listening to share it. Um, this has been um, incredibly enlightening conversation, and I'm looking forward uh, to have you come in. I know you're in New York City. Have you come in and and talk to my classes? Um, I have leaders that are being prepared in New York City, and I think your your message would be great uh, for them to hear. So I, I've learned so much, and I'm sure the listeners did, um, too, wishing you great success with your conference, and we'll be in touch. But until then, um, Mary, go well, stay well. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.